on the mountain as Yahweh gives him instructions on how to build the tabernacle, God's portable, temporary dwelling on earth, that is, until King Solomon would build the temple. The instructions continue through chapter 31, but today we're going to hear about God's design for some of the furnishings of the tabernacle, including the Ark of the Covenant, the Table of Bread, and the Golden Lampstand. Good morning. Today is Wednesday, December 14th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word the program where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Just a quick shout out for our sponsor, the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. They do great work for God's church. Learn more about their translating and publishing efforts over at lhfmissions.org. Well, please join me in welcoming my guest this morning, returning contributor to the show, the Reverend Dr. Curtis Dieterding, pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Fort Myers, Florida. Pastor Dieterding, good morning, and welcome back to the program. Thank you for that for that introduction, and uh, yeah, it's good to be back. So um, I guess we are going to uh, continue on here with the uh, Exodus study in, in chapter 25 today. I'm looking forward to that, uh, especially as we start talking about the tabernacle. Yeah, we have a ton of verses to cover today, 40 or something like that. But before right. we get into it, I do have to ask you, you know, we have a 50 degree difference between you and I. It's 27 <laughs> degrees here and it is 78 degrees, if Google is right, down there where you are. How are things going for you? How's the recovery effort been down there in Florida? And how's your Advent season been? Just just a few questions to start this morning. Sure, I, I'll, I'll tackle the first one there, the, the recovery. Um, we've had the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod uh, disaster response team here uh, since about a couple of weeks following the storm till just about uh, two weeks ago. But we still have groups coming down. Uh, so we uh, still have... Uh, some trailers here with equipment and so forth. And uh, there'll be a, a group coming down after Christmas uh, to help in the area. There's still a lot of recovery, especially on the two major islands down here. That's Fort Myers Beach uh, is like a, a long island. And then they also have uh, Sanibel Island. And in fact, the only people allowed on Sanibel Island so far have been those who are working, of course, out there to help restore everything. And then the families to get back to what's left in, in some of their homes. Some of the homes uh, weathered the storm fairly well. But in Fort Myers Beach, my wife and I actually drove through Fort Myers Beach. And uh, wow, <laughs> wow, I have not seen devastation like that ever. So uh, they got, they're going to have a long way to go. It's going to be years, absolutely years, for a lot of those uh, those um, businesses to return, homes to be rebuilt in there. Uh, they definitely are going to need to be built up to hurricane standards because a lot of those were old buildings, old homes. And so that's why there was so much devastation because they had never, ever been hit by a hurricane head on at high tide ever in the history that they that they can think of going back so yeah this was this was quite an experience and all of us even inland even even those of us who are more inland into fort myers and cape coral and so forth um you know we all are have been impacted at, in one way or another and it's just going to take it's just going to take time you know there's always going to be these reminders all around us for quite some time of that storm wow that's something else 
as I said before, I had vacationed once down in Sanibel. My wife grew up vacationing there, and right. our whole married life, she said, I want to take you to Sanibel. I want to take you to Sanibel. And we did the year before all this happened. Um, I, you know, I couldn't imagine the people who have to face that every day. But it's um, anyway, I'm glad that you're down there and we have people of God down there helping them. Um, the Advent season, you know, in the midst of all of this storm, uh, and recovery, certainly you are continuing to keep the focus on the big thing. I hope yes. that those services have been going well. Yes, they have. And uh, it's been amazing to see because we have the what we call snowbirds coming down. Some refer to them as sunbirds because they're coming for the sun. But uh, we uh, have people that always come down. Uh, this is very seasonal, uh, just like Arizona, Texas, and Southern California. We're very seasonal here, especially in Southern Florida. And um, as you know, because you've been down here too. So um, it's amazing to see that there's still quite a number of people still coming down already here in December. And then, of course, in January through April are our big months that uh, we'll, we'll have a real influx of people. But what's amazing about that is uh, there's not a lot of places for people to rent out and to go to as there had been in the past. So I'm not sure where they're, where they're staying or where they're at, but uh, we're always glad to see them come back uh, down and to uh, see f folks from up north. So yeah, our Advent uh, our Advent uh, season has been going well. We have a uh, a pastor who is a snowbird pastor. Uh, he calls himself the the Winterum pastor. His name is uh, Don Donald Hinchy, and he is uh, my assistant here in the winter. So he comes down from December first and stays through Easter. And it's always a big help because that's the time when we have the great numbers of people that come down that are part of our worshiping and uh, church community here. Wow, what a benefit. That's awesome. Yeah, well, as I said at the top fun. Well, as I said at the top of the show, we do have 40 verses to get through. So I'm I'm oh. hoping here that things are going well. We better dig in though. So yeah, sorry about start that. No, no, if you'd start off our time in some prayer, uh, you know, I think we could get started. Okay. Let's let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious God, you said to Moses to speak to the people of Israel to bring before them this need for the Ark of the Covenant, for the uh, table of bread, for the golden lampstand. And, and there was a purpose to all of this when it came to your relationship with us. We pray that as we hear these words again this day, that we see just how valuable that relationship is for you to serve us and to serve us in ways way beyond what you serve us each and every day through the daily bread we receive. Continue now to, to feed us and to bless us with all that you give to us in your word this day. This we pray in the one who is our light, who is the word, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Yeah, no, I always think it's valuable to hear how people are doing in other places uh, in the country. I think that the listeners love to hear about, you know, how ministry is going, and I'm uh, glad that you shared all that stuff with us. Um, our text for today is taking a shift, right, because it's another major section, and now we're getting some descriptions of the tabernacle, uh, well, how God wants it to be built. But uh, yesterday we had a fascinating conversation as Moses headed up the mountain. Now he's up there 40 days and 40 nights. And what happens next is not the uh, the golden idol situation. Moses gives us 
a revelation about what was going on on the mountain. Uh, so let's dig into that text. But before I read anything, maybe you'd like to set the stage for us. Well, I mean, I mean, you've you've done a great job right there. I mean, that's exactly where we're heading uh, in this uh, in this chapter today. It is. It's a big. It's a big shift, and now we're going to hear something very specific about uh, God's presence among His people, and we're going to hear it uh, in terms of the importance of God's presence being uh, active here in this tabernacle, in uh, this moving mobile temple is what it is. That's what a tabernacle. That's what the tabernacle was designed to be, so that they could continue to. Uh, bring it, bring this place of worship uh, with them wherever they uh, were going as they uh, were make, making their way to the promised land. So there's there's a lot here that we even connect to even in New Testament times in our own rituals and in our own rites here within our worship services that connect us to things that were even done back in the time of the tabernacle. Yeah, and it's easy, folks, to get lost in all of the detail, but just, you know, listen. Listen carefully for all the different descriptions, and then we'll uh, do our best to make those connections for you. This uh, chapter is naturally divided into four sections, so I'm going to read the first, which is the first nine verses, and uh, we'll start there, first, uh, chapter 25. Here we go. Yahweh said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for the setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, you shall make it. So we begin with a little bit of a, a love offering, right? They're passing the plate to get some stuff to make right. the uh, sanctuary. Uh, but there's a lot of detail here, brother. What, you know, Is there any kind of ream or, 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 I'm sorry, any scheme or rhyme or reason for, for what God's asking for? Yeah, I mean— you look at this, and if you don't know the whole context of Scripture and the story up until this point, you're going to yourself, okay, so where do they get all of these things? <laughs> these are, they, there's a lot of things here. We, we can probably uh, reason that where they get the goat skins and the goat hair and the tanned ram skins, you know, we get that. But he's asking for gold and silver and bronze and and uh, blue and purple yarns. I mean, those are the, and, and some anointing. These incense. I mean, all of these things. Where are they getting these stones? You know, all and the all of these things. And uh, if you recall, the people when they left Egypt uh, also took with them a lot of these very things. And so, you know, they had some of the riches of Egypt with them. And uh, therefore, we understand that they now have an opportunity to use the very things that the Lord really blessed them with as they were leaving Egypt to now uh, be a blessing when it comes to putting together this tabernacle. 
And another thing we notice too, at least I notice, is that a lot of these things, especially at the beginning of the list, have great value. I mean, gold and silver and bronze. And then these yarns, which, as we know, are very difficult to make because of the scarcity of the source materials for the colors. And so God is actually devoting quite a bit of, I guess if we can say it more crudely, a lot of bit of uh, of money to this situation, a lot of value. Mm-hmm. This isn't like, well, listen, I want you guys to make me a worship space, but you know, make it really simple and, and don't go overboard. Remember, all it really matters is our personal relationship. No, God says, gather up a bunch of gold and silver and bronze. And as we go through it, we're going to see that there is glory and beauty and all kinds of intricacy in the way that God wants them to build the place that he dwells among them. And I, I think that's important. Yeah, I it kind of reminds me of, you know, I know that there's a lot of people that like to build their own home, you know. Um, I know that in all, all the congregations I've ever served, there were there were a number of people that had their own ideas of how they wanted their home built. And that's what this kind of reminds me of. You know, God has just the perfect um, way in which he wants the place where he's going to live, where he's going to dwell among the people. Uh, to be just a certain way, only with God, there's um, there's actually probably even a greater purpose for all that He's asking them to do. You know, we look at all of this, we go, why why are they why are they doing all these things? Well, I think verse eight, you know, makes it very clear that the reason they're doing it is to make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Going to the theme, really, that carries throughout all of the scripture, I, the covenant that he makes with them is that he wants to be their God and he wants them to be his people. And so he wants to live among his people uh, in a very special way through the tabernacle. And this word even for tabernacle, now that's what we call it. We speak of Christ tabernacling or tenting among us. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the word really is more closely, pro- probably even better translated just as a dwelling, right? Tabernacle mm-hmm. it gives us the context that we've all we've grown up understanding. But if we see this as the dwelling of God, yeah, it really illustrates your point that God wants to be among his people. And when you come into the and of course, we haven't heard how it's all put together yet. But when you come into the presence of what God is putting together here for this portable mobile shrine you know that you're in the presence of god because even the design points to the glory of his creation it's just amazing um do you want to go on to talk about the next few verses in the ark of the covenant or anything else you want to lay the scene for um no i think i think you did a good job right there you know because yeah we kind of intertwine um the the word tabernacle with dwelling because that's exactly the purpose of the tabernacle is a place where God would dwell. And of course, you know, it, it attaches at this time of the year to, to John chapter one, verse 14, where the mm-hmm. word being Christ becomes flesh. And as some have translated it, you know, tabernacle among us, uh, you know, dwells among us uh, is what we've heard in the English, uh, you know, as we've come to know these precious verses from John. Why don't we read verses 10 through 22, and then we'll have quite a bit to talk about as we hear God describe the Ark of the Covenant. They shall make an ark of acacia wood, 
Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside you shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, you shall make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces, one to another, toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Right. So we have this very iconic, everybody, I think, has an, an idea of what the ark of the covenant looks like. And brother, I'm going to guess that if it's not from Exodus 25, it's at least from Raiders of the Ark, right? Lost. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right. Uh, I think all of us have that, probably have that picture in our mind. Anybody that's seen that movie, we right. have the, the picture of the, uh, of the Ark of the Covenant there in that movie. And um, actually not, not a bad uh, model, uh, you know, as far as what they used. And I think they tried to stay close to what was the, what the description was here in this, in this uh, passage too, but um, not not that whatever they were sharing throughout that movie was uh, theologically sound, but uh, rather uh, we'd at least get a picture. And it was, it was kind of nice to see that uh, in that movie. But um, yeah, there's a lot going on here. Um, there's you know this is a special, really box in, in, in a sense, a cabinet or however you want to put it that is going to house those precious words of the covenant, you know, that first covenant of the Ten Commandments that were given to the people of God, because, that, again, that was connected to um, his overall purpose and goal for those commandments were that if the people followed them, um, then he, they would be blessed by him in, in, in their relationship with him. And... Uh, and, it, and it, this covenant is one of, that was based on love, you know. I mean, if, even if you listen to uh, what Jesus says concerning this first covenant, uh, when he was questioned about which commandment is the greatest, you know, he said uh, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your, your mind and your strength. And the second is just as great, which is to uh, love your neighbor as yourself and it's it's as though you know every word of god is the greatest you know and it's right. all based on his love for his people 
Right. And so we see here in this, you know, covenant, he then provides for them, and I would say condescends to them, to us, a physical incarnation of his presence. So not only just the tabernacle where he dwells, but once you go into the tabernacle, you encounter the in the holy place, in the most holy place, you encounter this ark. And the ark itself testifies to the glory of God. And we see here in verse, uh, what is it, 17, you shall make a mercy seat, this cover of pure gold. This is the place where God is going to meet his people right here. You know where it is. And so you have people say, well, yeah, isn't God omnipresent, right? He's everywhere all the time. Yeah, but this is a place where he has promised to meet his people in a special way. And that, of course, continues today in his word and sacrament. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, the very presence of God, um, you know, our the mercy seat uh, is is one where uh, it was a place where God would actually use as his footstool, or if we can imagine it as a throne of God, you know, this is a, a very uh, precious place. And where is it going to be kept in the tabernacle? But right in the most holy place in the tabernacle, you know, right in the Holy of Holies. Uh, so that the people, you know, it, it as people, we need to be able to understand in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls um, about God, who is a spirit, you know, so you, you know, how, he's got to have something tangible for us to, to grasp uh, what he wants us to know about him. And we have, the, we have this tabernacle, you know, that uh, uses our senses to be able to have a more tangible presence with God. And, and I think you were saying that uh, as well, but uh, it's very important. I mean, you know, people to this very day, you know, wonder where is God? You know, I don't ever see him, don't hear God. I, but, but we do, and, and it's in what you were talking about. The very presence of God is in his word, in the Bible. It's in the sacraments, in the promises he makes in baptism, in the uh, very body and blood of Christ in uh, in Holy Communion. So, yeah, this is this is God in a very tangible way, um, showing His presence in a very special place, as you as you uh, put it. Now, when we talk about tangibility, at the in verse ten, it talks about make an ark of acacia wood, but then it gives us these very strange cubit type measurements, right? So this this isn't uh, this isn't metric. This isn't in American freedom units, right? This isn't sort of an old style. A cubit's what, about 18 inches. So, you know, it'd be probably good to kind of describe this for people. The Raiders of the Lost Ark reference, as you said, is a pretty good, uh, I think, rendering of this, you know, three foot by nine inch long uh, arc. But, you know, what are some of the symbolism around it uh, in terms of the way God has designed this? Have you, did you look into that at all? Um, I, I didn't for today's study. I do have some recollection of some of these things from the past, mm -hmm. um, you know, studies that I've had for these for this particular text. Um, that's how I uh, remembered the actual uh, cover of the Ark of the Covenant it was like considered the mercy seat of God, uh, the place uh, where his where we can see him 
like if we were to see him on a throne. Um, but it's also a place where uh, when the high priest would go in on the Day of Atonement, uh, he would use the blood of sacrifices and would sprinkle it there on the mercy seat as um, as a way of, of forgiving the sins of the people. And so there was right away an attachment uh, with the tabernacle and the temple that God is going to provide um, mercy through forgiveness. And uh, so there's a lot, and, and the fact that it's blood, and he's going to do it through blood and through sacrificial blood, uh, which, of course, all of this, everything that happens within the temple uh, and the tabernacle um, point to the one great sacrifice uh, who's coming, which is uh, this awaited Messiah, the Savior, um, that's, you know, so, so it's already preparing uh, God's people throughout the rest of the history of the of the United of the United States of the of the world of all nations once they come to Christ to know that God's already at work in uh, making preparation for the sacrifice that brings salvation, life, and forgiveness. Well, you're right. I think to focus on that mercy seat because. While we have these beautiful atonements, I'm sorry, atonements, I had something else in my head, these beautiful adornments on the ark, I think a lot of uh, hay has been made over trying to connect everything to some sort of uh, spiritual meaning, right? Well, each part means. And perhaps there are very specific spiritual meanings that have been lost in time, but at this point, we're mostly just guessing. The focus is, just as you said, that mercy seat of God where God meets his people, you know, covered in gold, and we have it flanked by these angels, these cherubim, which are guarding the holiness of God. And earlier I had said that the, the, the thing itself reminds people of God's presence, but now I just thought about something related to what you said. You talked about uh, Yom Kippur, right, the Day of Atonement. Mm -hmm. This mm -hmm. happened one time a year, and it's the one right. time a year that the high priest could enter uh, the this space where this was. So I think that's what Leviticus 16. So I guess the people ordinarily could not see this mercy seat of God. They knew it was there. Uh, some of them had built it. The high priest saw it, but the average people didn't see it. And so he would go in and be that intercessor on behalf of the people before God. And of course that that you know dovetails right into what God would do eventually through Jesus. And that tearing of the of the temple curtain that divided the people from this mercy oh, seat right. from the most holy place, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good point. Very good point. Um, yeah, and and just you know, another thing I had not thought of until you just mentioned it was the fact that yes, the people were not allowed into the holy of holies, and never really uh, got to see with their own eyes the actual ark of the covenant. Then they would have probably just only heard of it or heard about it but i think it also on the other hand gives it its, its uh sacred uh its sacredness its um uh its pureness its its holiness that you know it's so holy that you know that uh it doesn't want anything unclean to be touching that ark you know god has all these uh regulations and rules when it comes to 
his presence and uh, yeah so there's a lot there and 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 again you know I mean it, it, it even as you move forward to God coming in the most tangible way into this world in the very flesh of Christ Jesus um, it's it's very interesting to see how uh, all of this moves forward and uh, becomes fulfilled in that one. Well, I tell you what, I want you to hold that idea about it being, you know, the scarcity uh, making it seem a little bit more holy. Hold that idea in your head because I want to talk about that when we get back. But right now, we are going to take a break. So, folks at home, don't go anywhere. Pastor Dieter Ding and I will be right back. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Dr. Curtis Dieterding, pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Fort Myers, Florida. Before we jump back into the text, folks, I just want to remind you that if you have any questions or comments about today's show, or you just want to get in touch with our guest, feel free to direct them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. Uh, pastor Dieterding, before the break, we were talking about, you know, uh, this idea that the scarcity kind of breeds a, a holiness feel about it. And I think that's true in general when when things are set apart or made holy, right? They're sanctified for a particular mm. use. People treat them better. And, and the reason why I wanted to hold on to that thought is because it reminded me of the early church's practice regarding the Lord's Supper. So today we have this constant debate over, uh, you know, closed communion and the communion is reserved for those who have been instructed in the use and the meaning. And, you know, people get upset because they're invited to a service, but they're not of our confession. And so they're not invited to the altar and et cetera, et cetera. But the early church would have had people literally removed from the nave who were not admitted to the Lord's Supper, such that it would take a while before someone was able to be admitted, especially if you were baptized as an infant and you were brought up in the faith you would have never even necessarily seen the Lord's Supper take place until you were then admitted to it. And I've always thought about how people would have considered it so much more meaningful and different when they've been working toward being able to receive properly the Lord's gifts, and they had not even really seen it happen until the day that they were ready. You wouldn't have those same issues of, well, this is just something that I have a right to, et cetera, et cetera. You know, no one in Israel would have thought, well, I'm a child of Abraham, so I should be able to waltz into the holiest of holies anytime I want. Uh, they would mm -hmm. have thought that would have been very blasphemous. 
So even though we have this separation between us and God removed by Christ, we still access God through Christ. And the, the Lord's Supper is something that has these sort of sacred restrictions around it because of God's command. And that's what I was thinking about. You know, I think sometimes we've made it almost too common. Uh, that's a good point. Yeah, I, I do remember even in the history, um, I believe, of the, of, the, of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, I, I believe there was a time when people that were not confirmed uh, were released from the service, and those who were of the confirmed body of Christ uh, would then uh, be would continue on with the, with the communion part of the service. Um, I, at least I recall hearing that somewhere along the line uh, in the history of the church. I'm not sure if, if, if that's true for uh, a lot of churches or if that just was, uh, you know, common among a, a certain number. But, um, you know, there's, there's, there is a holiness and a sacredness because of the fact that Christ's very body and blood are present in this meal. And so we want to we want to treat it with with great sacredness. That's for sure. Well, <clears throat> back to the ark. Pardon me. So we have uh, the cherubim spreading out their wings, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, faces toward one another. Uh, you know, there's significance in these cherubim. We see it elsewhere in Scripture. the The prophets sometimes describe you know God's throne, and we see the cherubim around the throne. Um, but interestingly enough, this is made to be hollow because it's going to contain some things. And the first thing it will contain, he says, is those commandments or that covenant that he makes with Moses. Um, other things are going to go in there too, though, right? Yeah, I mean, there's going to be a, a lot of other things that are going to be um, requested and required by – it's not just requested, it's required by God the way that he wants everything set up. So um, there'll be, uh, you know uh, – There'll be posts, there'll be a veil, there'll be uh, an incense altar, there'll be all kinds of things that'll be added. We, we know here uh, that the three major uh, components are the Ark of the Covenant, the table for bread, and the golden lampstand. And uh, this is going to be very important for um, God's people that it's done the way he has directed it uh, so that... Um, they respect and revere fully uh, their relationship based on when he speaks, we obey, you know, and that's because he is the one who provides for us, the one that we fully trust in for everything. And um, he wants that relationship to be uh, understood in a way that we understand that he is God and we are the people. We are his people, his creation that uh, he has blessed us with this life that we now live. What I also think is interesting about the Ark of the Covenant, and I found this in my own research of it, but the Ark was patterned after an Egyptian artifact. Uh, the Egyptian uh, palanquin, I think is what it's called, and there was one found in the tomb of Tutankhamun, which was nearly yes. uh, the same size, and has those rings for carrying it just like just like uh, we have here that God is establishing for Israel. And I find it fascinating as we look through this, and as you'll see when we go through the next few days, God uses things from their understanding 
and re uh, let's see, re sanctifies them, like re consecrates them to his use in the same way that he draws out the gold of, of Egypt and then he presses them into service for himself. Um, mm-hmm. He uses things that they would have seen. And so he's instructing them to build something that actually already exists, but now it's going to be used for his worship. And that makes a lot of sense for a people who have no really, no real experience outside being slaves in Egypt. So now they understand what this is for. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. Um, yeah, so God God's going to give meaning to everything, you know, in the tabernacle. I mean, He brings meaning to everything in the tab- tabernacle. I should restate that, and uh, all of those things, just as I had mentioned before are going to be um, literally not only pointing to the greater salvation that's coming, um, but also in how that salvation is going to come and that it's going to all be fulfilled in this one. And so it's interesting to even see how worship in the temple and the synagogues, you know, moved over to worship in the Christian faith in those who followed uh, Christ and became believers, in, even especially among the Jews uh, of the day, that they continued on with much of the practices and the furnishing still means something. It still does in our churches today, as far as what, what the altar represents. The, the, uh, we have a pulpit place where the word is presented. We have a, a, a baptismal font. The three main uh, pieces of furniture. I, I always use those those three furnishings in our church for our junior confirmation students to try and remember the importance of word and sacraments. You know that that is the focal point of where we receive the nourishment and the strength that God wants to give us and all of His wonderful gifts. And I tell them in order to remember what that it. You know what word and sacraments is that these means of grace you look up at the front of the church and you see the baptismal font for baptism the altar for holy communion and the pulpit for the preaching of the word and uh, of course these are the three major foundational pieces that we have from god that that offer all those wonderful great gifts that christ has brought us Anything else you want to cover about the Ark before we move on? I think we've covered that pretty well. We probably do need to move on since we got two major sections to go yet. Well, let's do it. This is going to be verses, uh, let's see here, 23 through 30. This will be the table for bread. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, a handbreadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls for with, with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. Okay, brother, lots to dig in here. Take us through it. 
Yeah, so, I mean, you just just right there at the very beginning, you know, we, we heard of this wood before, this acacia wood, which actually uh, becomes part of uh, the posts that would be overlaid with gold that would be part of this whole process, too. Um, and I, I looked up acacia wood just to see, uh, you know, what it looks like. And it's gorgeous. I don't know if you've actually taken a look at that. But, um, you know, when they would describe it as being kind of a, a it, it's kind of a goldish, uh, reddish brown I, that kind of weaves in and out. They're, they're just beautiful uh, wood. Um, so, you know, God's using the very best here of his creation. Uh, and then, of course, you know, we've got the, the, the length of it uh, again. But uh, using gold, too, right? Uh, gold always has been a standard by which it it shows the richness, the pureness of, of things. Um, and here you've got uh, this, uh, this still another uh, explanation with the rings of gold and poles to carry the table. Um, you, you definitely can see that there's some very specific things that God wants this table to, to be like, because it's going to carry... Uh, uh, this bread, this bread of presence on the table. And uh, and he says that he wants that to happen on a regular basis. So you got plates, dishes for incense, flagons, bowls. It's, it sounds like we're setting up a, a table for a meal. And in this case, uh, for the bread of presence uh, to be brought in. And, there's a, and then, of course, there's a lot of connections with this whole idea of the bread. And uh, what we see is bread uh, uh, that we serve from the altar, you know, of Christ's very presence, too. So in that bread. So it's, there's it's just a lot that's connected here back to uh, what God was, was, was telling them. What I think is fascinating, when we look at how it's described, God is describing these things for Moses— Moses is relating them to the people. Now, he's relating them um, – well, he'll relate them in real time once he comes back, but as he's recording them in Scripture, you know, the, the people who would read this from Moses' writing would understand what the bread of presence was. They would understand the that the rings were because this tabernacle is going to be carried as they move through the desert. Uh, but I wonder, as Moses is hearing this from God for the first time, if he's making all these connections, he doesn't know what bread of presence is, but we do, we know what it is. We see this in Leviticus 24, starting with mm. verse 5, um, the bread is described. Now, there's actually 12 loaves of bread, one bread for each, uh, well, a, a tribe of Israel. And the 12 lobes aren't touched during the week, and they're eaten by the priests at the end of the week. So in Leviticus 24, I'm just going to take an excursion here, and we're going to read just a few verses. Uh, it's written, You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before Yahweh. And you shall put frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to Yahweh. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before Yahweh regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever, and it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. 
So we see here that the table's being made for something God will fulfill with purpose later, but Moses mentions it in verse 30, you know, you shall set the bread of presence on it. He just talks like they know what that is because mm-hmm. by the time it's by the time that uh, he's relating this, everybody does know what it is. You know, Moses is God's explaining this to Moses. Moses then writes it down for the people. But this bread of presence brings into my mind the obvious connection, and that is before Christ, this is a bread eaten by the priests. After Christ, we are a nation of priests, and we mm-hmm. get to partake in the bread of the true presence. Whose presence? Christ's. Right. Yeah, that's that's a great point there, too. Yes. And, and we also note that the article is in front of that word presence, that it's the presence. And when we hear that description, we know that we're talking about the presence of the one holy God. And... Uh, yeah, it's it, there's a there's a whole there's a whole um, uh, understanding here of what it means to be in the presence of God. You know, when we leave the worship services, uh, oftentimes we hear the ironic blessing. You know, uh, may His you know countenance you know the Lord bless you and keep you. May His countenance be lifted upon you. You know that that, that He can lift up His countenance means that He can face you. And that uh, you can actually see, you know, that, that you've been forgiven in such a way that, that we can stand in the presence even of God in his countenance, you know. Yeah. And uh, that was a big, that was big back in the Old Testament times, too, because some people died in the presence of God's <laughs> countenance. And, uh, you know, M- Moses glowed as a result of it. But here we see God's mercy that we can actually stand before God and know that we have. Uh, we have his presence is is there and um, his mercy is there that we might live and have life with him and not uh, fear him in a way that we still re- remain under his wrath and condemned. But now we have been freed and forgiven through Christ Jesus. I mean, there's a lot. There's so much here uh, that we could talk about when it comes to the presence well, I like that you bring out the 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 article in presence. The ESV editors capitalize presence because the question is is evident, right? Whose mm-hmm. presence is this? And it's the presence of God. And we have God's presence here, which I think is is fabulous because then you fast forward thousands of years, you have the debates over Christ's true body and blood in the bread and the wine. And you have the Calvinists and others saying, well, God wouldn't dare come to us in bread, right, for us to consume and then, and then you know, come through our system. Uh, where did you ever get the idea that the presence of God would be located in bread? And, and here, of course, we have it all the way back in Exodus 25. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you want to move on to the golden lampstand? Get that done. Let's go on. Let's go on. All right, here we go. So this is going to be the rest of the chapter, verses 31 through 40. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it, Three cups made like almond blossoms, 
each with a mm -hmm. calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and a flower on the other branch, so that for the six branches going out of the lampstand. So, on the lampstand itself, there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold, and see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown to you on the mountain. Whew, I love verse 40, and here's why. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. When I read these text descriptions, I always think at the back of my head, I hope God's showing him a picture of this. And when I read 40, I feel better for Moses because I'm thinking, I, you know, and maybe this isn't exactly it, but in my mind's eye, I have a vision of God saying, like a vision in front of him going, okay, this is what it's supposed to look like. Because it's so hard for us to get our minds around as we're just digging through the text description. But we have this beautiful uh, lampstand that resembles a tree. Uh, it's, it's, it's beautiful, and it's made of pure gold, which is amazing. So you must you must struggle with the story about Noah then too and building his boat, right? Yeah, absolutely, uh, right. You have to think about all these ways to put it together. Well, right. think of all the think of all the different ways that these things the mm -hmm. um, the Ark of the Covenant, the furnishings of the covenant, the tabernacle, even Noah's Ark. Think about all the many different ways, even the ephod on the priests and the priest outfits. Yes, all the different ways yes. they've been depicted through history. They, they change. They, there's a variety of different depictions because a lot is left to the imagination. So even here, we see that Moses's leadership is important for them to get the job done right. It's not just what he writes down. He has to be there to lead them to make it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, you know, what, what kind of caught my eye is, th at least this time whenever you were reading through it, um, were these almond blossoms. Um I probably have more almond in my diet today than I've ever had in my life uh, with almond milk and almond flour and just plain almonds. Uh, I, I've eaten more. I eat more almonds now than and, and drink it even even the al almond <laughs> juice more than I've ever in my life. And uh, it was interesting because uh, here in the commentary in the ESV and in the Concordia Study Bible, um, I, I just looked down to see if it mentioned it, and sure enough, it says, you know, this is the earliest to flower in the spring are, are these almond blossoms, which to me indicate uh, that, that they are probably um, among the strongest of those blossoms that, that bloom uh, because they come on so early and probably uh, can withstand maybe a little bit harsher uh uh, weather around it first before before other blossoms. I don't know. That's it was just kind of interesting to see that, and whether or not there's any kind of connection with yeah. these blossoms and these flowers uh, that these stands are supposed to be made to look like. On um, the four cups, you know, all of this is is there, 
And it's yeah, just, it's, uh, it's interesting. I mean, God obviously has an order to what he's doing, right? Even if mm -hmm. we can't always figure it out, which is kind of what I said at the top of the show, right? Like we don't always 100% know what everything is supposed to equate, if anything. Perhaps it's just made to be beautiful because we see that too, that God makes these things for beauty as well as for his own glory. One of my resources mentions that the Hebrew word for almond blossoms is uh, shakedim, which is related mm. to the word shakad. And the, the verb shakad means to be watchful, right? To be faithful. And so mm. perhaps, according to this author, the uh, it's connected to God's faithfulness. I don't know. That might be a stretch. Mm. But we do know that uh, this beautiful instrument for God's service is made out of the finest materials. And I think that speaks to today because... We sort of, I don't want to say cheap out, but now we're delivering Christ's blood in little plastic cups. I mean, how far have we fallen from relating the best to our Lord as opposed to the most economical? Brother, we have like one minute left in the program. We've we've talked a little too much, but that's okay. Um, last The last minute is all yours. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, when you look at the entire chapter here— um, you look at those, those the titles that have been given by the ESV, um, there's one word in each of those uh, titles that stands out in each. Sanctuary, covenant, bread, and lampstand. And, and we see Christ in all of that. Christ as the one who describes himself as temple. Uh, you see Christ who describes himself as the bread of life. Christ who describes himself as the light of the world. He is the new covenant. You know, it's a new covenant in his blood that's shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins so that we may one day live in the eternal presence of God. Amen to that. And that is a good point to leave it on. Folks, I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Dr. Curtis Dieterding, pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Fort Myers, Florida. Thanks, pastor, for being on the show. Thank you, Pastor Boo. It's always a joy. And folks, thank you for hanging out with us this morning. Tomorrow we'll delve into God's design for the tabernacle itself, an intricate tent made with the finest materials and designed to be packed up and moved as the people moved. Lots of detail, but tons of interesting imagery. Also, happy 98th birthday to KFUO Radio. So join us tomorrow as we continue to share the gospel through the Old Testament and Exodus. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong work.